Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Cardiology Trials podcast. This is Muhammad Ruzia joined by Andrew Foy and John Mandrolla. Today we will be discussing two important trials of beta blockers in patients with acute myocardial infarction, the Capricorn trial and the Comet trial. The Capricorn trial was published in The Lancet in 2001. While beta blockers were frequently used in patients with acute myocardial infarction complicated by heart failure, at the time of the Capricorni trial was undertaken, supportive evidence from large-scale randomized trials was lacking. The BHAT and ISIS-1 trials reviewed earlier excluded patients with overt heart failure or those who had concerning hemodynamics. The Capricorni trial sought to test the hypothesis that early initiation of carvedilol in patients with acute myocardial infarction complicated by heart failure or LV dysfunction would reduce morbidity and mortality compared to placebo. Eligible patients were 18 years or older with a stable definite myocardial infarction occurring 3 to 21 days prior to randomization with either a left ventricular ejection fraction of 40% or less, or a wall motion index score of 1.3 or less, and who were receiving an ACE inhibitor for at least 48 hours and were on a stable dose for at least 24 hours. The average age of patients was 63 years and over 70% were men. Approximately one-third of patients had a prior myocardial infarction, more than 20% had diabetes, and 50% had hypertension. The average ejection fraction was 32%, and over half of the patients had anterior myocardial infarction. Nearly 50% of patients underwent thrombolysis or angioplasty for the primary myocardial infarction, and at the time of randomization, 98% of patients were on ACE inhibitor and 86 were on aspirin. Patients received either carvedilol or an identically placebo. Study medication was titrated up to the highest tolerated dose for each patient to a maximum of 25 mg twice daily. The initial dose was 6.25 twice daily. The original primary endpoint was all-cause mortality, and the trial was intended to run until a total of 633 primary endpoint events occurred. However, during a masked analysis, the Data and Safety Monitoring Committee noted that the overall mortality was lower than it predicted, and that the study could not be completed with the original sample size and power as planned. The steering committee therefore designated co-primary endpoints. The first was a new composite primary endpoint of all-cause mortality or cardiovascular hospital admission, and the second was all-cause mortality. The alpha or false positive was divided between the two primary endpoints so that the composite endpoint of all-cause mortality and cardiovascular hospitalization was tested at 0.045, and all-cause mortality was tested at 0.005. A total 
of 19, 59 patients were included in the final analysis, 984 in the placebo group, and 975 in the Carvedaloli group. The mean follow-up time was 1.3 years. Compared to placebo, Carvedalol did not significantly reduce the composite primary endpoint of all-cause death or cardiovascular hospitalization. The hazard ratio was 0.92 and confidence interval was 0.802-1.07. Or all-cause death alone, hazard ratio was 0.77 and confidence interval was 0.602. 2.98. Now listen to this because it is really important. The authors presented the all-cause mortality result as positive. However, it is not. In Table 1, the p-value for all-cause mortality is 0.031, which is higher than the 0.005 they specified earlier. Thus, there is a good chance that the mortality result represents a false positive finding. In conclusion, in patients with acute myocardial infarction complicated by heart failure and significant LV dysfunction, carvedilol did not significantly reduce all-cause death or cardiovascular hospitalization compared to placebo. Now we will move to the COMMIT trial which was published in The Lancet in 2005. Recall that in the BHAT trial, propranolol reduced death two years following an acute myocardial infarction with a number needed to treat of approximately 33. But the cohort was highly selected. The drug was started on an, on an average 14 days following admission and those over the age of 70 were excluded. ISIS-1 found that atenolol reduced death with a number needed to treat of approximately 100 when started immediate, immediately in lower risk acute myocardial infarction patients, but the treatment effect heterogeneity was observed in patient subgroups with higher risk features. The COMMIT trial sought to test the hypothesis that early beta blockade with metoprolol would reduce cardiac events and death in a broad population of patients with acute myocardial infarction. Patients with suspected myocardial infarction who presented with ST elevation, left bundle branch block or ST depression within 24 hours of symptom onset were eligible. Unlike BHAT and ISIS-1 trials, evidence of moderate heart failure, KILIP 2 or 3, was not an exclusion criteria. The average age of participants was 61, and the majority were men, 72%. Approximately 25% of patients were classified as Kilib class 2 or Kilib class 3. The trial had 2 by 2 factorial design, but we will focus only on the metoprolol comparison. Following randomization, patients were immediately given metoprolol or a placebo. At hospital discharge or at day 28, whichever came first, a single-sided follow-up form was to be completed. No further follow-up was sought. Post-discharge use of aspirin, beta blocker, and other established therapies was encouraged but not monitored. There were two 
two pre-specified co-primary outcomes. One was a composite of death, reinfarction or cardiac arrest, and the other was all-cause mor all mortality during the scheduled treatment period, that is, until hospital discharge or day 28. The trial randomized 22,929 patients in the metoprolole group and 22,923 patients in the placebo group. Compared to placebo, metoprolol did not significantly reduce the primary outcome endpoint. Odds ratio 0.96, confidence interval 0.9021.01, or all-cause death. Odds ratio 0.99, confidence interval 0.9221.05. Metoprolol use reduced reinfarction. 2.0% versus 2.5% and ventricular fibrillation 2.5% versus 3.0% but it increased cardiogenic shock 5.0% versus 3.9% metoprolol use also increased heart failure without shock 14.1% versus 12.7% a treatment effect heterogeneity was evident based on subgroups. Patients whose myocardial infarction were complicated by hemodynamic instability or heart failure and who were higher risk for experiencing adverse events did worse with metoprolol. For example, for patients with systolic blood pressure of less than 120, death rates were 9.6 in the metoprolol group compared to 8.8% in the placebo group. A similar but more striking trend was evident based on, on heart rate and Kilib class. For patients with a heart rate of 110 or more, death rates were 20.3% in the metoprololi group and 18.3% in the placebo group. For patients classified as Kilib class 3, Death rates were 19.7% in the metoprololi group and 16.5% in the placebo group. In conclusion, IV metoprolol followed by oral administration over approximately 15 days did not reduce cardiovascular events or death in patients presenting with acute myocardial infarction. Unlike ISIS-1 trial, Patients presenting with heart failure and hemodynamic instability were not excluded from COMET, and this explains the divergent results, and this fact is critically important for a clinical translation. Okay. Now let's start talking about the Capricorn trial, which is often presented and discussed as a positive trial. The p-value for all-cause mortality was 0 003 now, Drew and John, do you want to tell us why we still think this is negative despite the p-value being less than the traditional cutoff we use, which is 0 0.05? Well, sure. You know. Oh, sorry. Let me. Let me. Uh, let me. I want you to. I want you to really speak to it, Andrew, and, and the audiences. You know, listeners have already heard uh, the review of the trial, but it's very interesting um, that. The Capricorn trial, if you really stick by the statistical rules, both endpoints are non-significant. Um, but yet in the manuscript, uh, it doesn't really read that way. The authors concluded that 
uh, beta blockers do reduce death. However, it just it it really is an interesting thing because the the trial they 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 looked at the interim results, thought there would be an underpowered trial, and decided to instead of going longer or recruiting more patients. They decided to change the primary endpoint to an endpoint that would capture more events. And then because of that, the trial is shorter and there are there are um, uh, fewer death events. There's a there's a signal, a trend towards lower deaths in the beta blocker group. However, based on their uh, recommendation of what the level of statistical significance is, it doesn't meet that. And so, I know Andrew, you'll have lot. You have lots of thoughts on this, but I just, I'm, I'm sort of torn. The tension between the numbers are better for beta blocker, but is it noise or is it signal? And I, I, I guess depending on what hat you wear, a, a true statistician's hat or a clinician's hat, or does it even make a difference? Tell us. Yeah, um, I I suspect it doesn't have so much to do with whether what kind of hat you wear, but but probably the bias that you that you bring to this particular issue. Uh, um, to me, it's 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 fairly straightforward. Um, this was supposed to be an event driven trial. That's how it was planned. Um, at the interim analysis, which was blinded. Um, there, they, they saw that the trial was going to be underpowered because the all-cause mortality signal was not as high as they predicted, and that the trial was either going to have to run for a lot longer, or they were going to have to make a change to the protocol, and they decided to add um, the endpoint of cardiac hospitalizations and make a composite endpoint that combined cardiac hospitalizations and all-cause mortality. And they decided that, you know, they would then still stick um, and they and they would stand by that. And they decided that they would split the alpha and call, they, they said that the appropriately powered endpoint in this case would be uh, the composite endpoint. And therefore, um, the alpha on that was set at 0 0.045. Um, had to be better than that to to be declared statistically significant. And because they themselves appreciated that the all-cause mortality uh, event rate was going to be underpowered, they only they they declared the alpha at 0 0.005. And they did that. They made it so they declared by doing that that they would have a very high bar for declaring uh a signal for all-cause mortality statistically significant so that they would not declare a false positive result to be to be positive when in fact it wasn't um and you know we've before talked you, about yes. before you go on can you just speak about alpha i mean that's a funny term I, give uh, us a the, that's the p-value Correct. And the, the chance of really, is it not right just to consider it's the chance of a false positive? And the reason why they made it stricter with the all-cause death signal is because they were going to have fewer all-cause deaths. And if they left it at the normal 0.05, there would be a greater chance of 
declaring a false positive signal. Right, because they knew that they were really underpowered for that uh, at the event at the event rate. And we okay. talked about we interrupt. talked about that relationship before about underpowered trials and declaring false positive and false negative uh, signals. And we we talked about that with the meta analyses of like nitrates and magnesium and how small trials. Uh, tend to um, arrive at, at false conclusions. And so that's why they were fairly meticulous about how they split the alpha in the trial. Um, and I mean, essentially acknowledging that a signal for all-cause mortality that wasn't associated with a p-value less than 0.005, there was a, a good chance that that, that, was, that would be false positive. Um, and then basically the results showed that for the composite endpoint, the appropriately powered endpoint, all-cause mortality plus cardiovascular hospitalization, it was negative. It was 35% versus 37%. And the P value on that was 0.3. I mean, it really wasn't close to being statistically significant. It, the confidence intervals was 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 wide on both sides of um, one, and it was it was just a negative trial. Uh, all cause mortality, the difference was twelve percent versus fifteen percent, and the p value on that was 0 0.03, which is very far from 0 0.005. Um, and so, by the rules of the trial, that was also negative. Um, and I, I, I guess you could say I'm being a stickler by saying that I think it's negative. Um, and I put it in context with the other beta blocker trials that we've, that we've looked at so far and that we'll review next with the commit trial, um, I think that patients with acute MI are 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 not the same as patients with chronic uh, systolic heart failure, and um, I think that's why this trial was was negative. And what's so interesting, I'm looking as I talk at the interpretation or the or the, the really the conclusion in the Lancet from the Capricorn investigators, and it it. It says in patients treated long-term after acute MI complicated by LV dysfunction, carvedilol reduced the frequency of all-cause death and cardiovascular mortality and recurrent non-fatal infarction. So it says that it reduced all-cause death, so it didn't stick to its, uh, its own declarations of 0.005 level of significance. And then it focused on cardiovascular mortality and recurrent non-fatal MIs, which are secondary endpoints. So it doesn't even mention in the conclusion in the Lancet that the primary endpoint was non-significant and not even close to significance was, like you said, a P of 0.3. So right. what? And we, this is weird. It is. And don't we generally, I mean, what I think most people would probably consider cardiovascular hospitalizations, a softer endpoint that 
tends to be like easier to show a difference in. Right. Um, and so, I mean, the fact that like they, that they're, that they essentially ignore the negative result of the composite endpoint, which they declared as the appropriately powered endpoint, um, which was the appropriately powered endpoint based on the difference that they sought to show, uh, you know, to me, it just doesn't, um, it, uh, it doesn't, doesn't pass the test for me. And, and I think the other thing that's important to point out is that there was other things in this trial that are, are sort of glossed over a bit. But one thing I would say is that even if we are to accept, let's just say the author's interpretation of the results, which I think mirrors probably the clinical community, at least that engages in sort of adjudicating whether this is the right thing to do or not. Um, if we accept that the, that the that interpretation is correct, we need to deal with the external validity concerns brought on by the trial, which is there, at least in the main manuscript, info is not provided on, on screen to enrolled patients. Um, so that's one thing. Two, uh, there's a sequencing issue here, which isn't discussed. All patients had to be stable on an ACE inhibitor uh, for at least 20, they had to be on an ACE inhibitor for more than 48 hours and stable on a stable dose for more than 24 hours. So that's a sequencing issue. Um, and then they don't tell us this average start date of Carvedilol in the trial. So like, you know, it would be very different from like a contemporary clinical translation standpoint to know if it was like five days versus let's say 15 days or 12 days. And, and then their titration protocol is, is challenging to replicate. Um, I mean, these patients were started on 6.25 BID, titrated to a max of 25 milligrams BID, but they had to be followed in the hospital for at least uh, so long after dose adjustments were made. Um, and then even after they left the hospital, as they were still trying to titrate to the maximum recommended dose, they had to be followed every three to 10 days for assessment of tolerability and further up titration. So that's very different than the ACE inhibitor trials, which tended to have like, you know, a one month follow-up visit, then a three month follow-up visit, and then sort of every three months thereafter. I mean, here... We're saying that these patients need to be to sometimes be seen within a week after making changes to the dose of the drug. So, like, this is a very different uh, drug with with just every. There's a lot of things different about this trial than what we've seen in the ACE inhibitor trials, and I think that has to do with the mechanism of action of these drugs and um, the vulnerability of this patient population. And I don't think that a, a lot of those points are really appreciated in, in contemporary practice. No, I don't think they are either. Ruzier, should we, should we go over some of the question, the two, the two questions on, on this topic, we, from the commenters? Yeah, of course. So we have a question about the Capricorn trial and how the results compare with the results of Merit HF and CIBIS 1 and 2. 
So I don't know if Drew, would you want to comment? Yeah, on? sure. So that comment came from us, uh, from Steve Chung. He's uh, somebody who I know has been a follower from the beginning. He often um, makes really good comments on the reviews and um, has has mentioned several times that he's been surprised um, by, by several of these reviews, particularly uh, in relation to the beta blocker trials. And I guess I would just say that um, the reason that we're presenting Capricorn in the sort of separately from merit heart failure and see this one and two is that Capricorn was specifically in these acute MI patients and those other trials are in patients with chronic systolic heart failure. And um, I view those as very different populations and I, uh, I would not necessarily accept that doing something in one would would apply to the other. And I think that that's probably the opinion of like the clinical investigative community, which is why they they separate these patient populations when they tend to do these trials. Um, and again, from from my standpoint, the mechanism of action, particularly of beta blockers um, and and some of the ways that we think about why do they benefit patients with chronic systolic heart failure specifically wouldn't apply or may not apply to patients who are post mi and the mechanism of action uh especially in vulnerable patients um could make outcomes worse and so that's why i i think it's very important to view the trials within the context of of the patient patient selection. Uh, and that's something that we decided that when we were doing this textbook and reviewing these trials, that we were going to make, that we were going to focus very heavily on patient selection, baseline characteristics, and the most important aspects of the results and how they sort of should be clinically translated. Um, and so that's why Capricorn is being talked about here. And and no, I don't think you need to worry about being surprised when we talk about or when we review um, some of these medications in the chronic or in the heart failure section. Um, and I guess to me as a general cardiologist, I see patients in the outpatient setting and also in the inpatient setting who have chronic heart failure and who are post-acute post MI and who have sort of new heart failure. And just as as a clinician um, who's sort of making observations about things that I'm dealing with in practice, to me, these are very different populations of patients. And so I think it's it's right to study them differently. And I think that it was the right call to study them differently in these trials, but also to be more sophisticated in how we interpret their results. Just because carvedilol and metoprolol succinate have have positive results in patients with chronic systolic heart failure doesn't necessarily mean that that will apply to patients who are post-MI and who are um, who are more vulnerable patients, in my opinion. And so uh, I don't necessarily accept that the results in one population automatically apply to the other. And I think that leads us into the comment from uh, Greg L., who basically asked, um, how did the authors interpret the results from the Capricorn trial? 
and what was their explanation for why they thought it was a positive study. And I would encourage, you know, people that are interested in this to, to read the discussion of Capricorn itself. Um, I don't want to speak for those authors. I guess my interpretation of, of their interpretation would be that they sort of take Capricorn and the mortality signal in Capricorn, and, and they sort of put it in context with the signals from the chronic uh, heart failure trials and said that it's consistent with those signals. And thus, it sort of, it all lines up and it's why they view it as positive. And they do also mention that there is a, there is a positive signal for beta blockers in post-MI patients as well, but they acknowledge that the signal strength isn't the same and that those populations are a little bit different. Um, but yeah, I mean, essentially they, they think that this trial's positive because other beta blocker trials are positive and they view it as a consistent signal. Um, I don't. And then I would also say that they this trial came before the commit trial, which is the next trial that we're going to discuss. And I do think the commit trial also helped to clarify um, some some things around this topic. It clarify some things, meaning strengthens the argument that we're making that uh, Capricorn probably should be considered a, a non-significant uh, signal for carvedilol in these patients. Correct. Um, yeah, I, I guess I, yeah, I guess I would say that, that that's true. All right. Should we, Ruzier, should we move to commit? Yeah, I think this is, yeah, uh, we can move to commit and we discussed it at the beginning of this uh, podcast as uh, uh, everyone listened. I think with commit, one of the striking things, then I will let you both comment, both comment on this is, so the signal was not significant for the overall population, but in patients who had lower blood pressure defined as, defined as systolic less than 120, or they had tachycardia heart rate more than 110, they did relatively worse than stable patients. And that's an important, I think, subgroup because we often see these patients at the hospital who are tachycardic, and there is always this reflex that the patient has tachycardia, let's lower the heart rate. And that's not necessarily a good thing to do because maybe they are tachycardic because they need to be tachycardic at that moment. Well, I agree with that. And before we get to the subgroup, I would just like to point out that I didn't realize this actually, but in looking at this, 23,000 patients were randomized in each arm of this trial. That's just unbelievable. And then the the... Uh, primary composite endpoint comes out with a with an odds ratio of 0.96 and I mean not significant difference all cause death odds ratio 0.99 like 7.7 .7 versus 7.8 percent so you know super tight conference intervals and non-significance um, overall so you know I I mean we just don't see trials with 29,000 or 23,000 patients in each arm anymore. So I don't know, you can feel pretty confident that this was not missing a signal. Do you, do you all agree with that? 
Yeah, I certainly agree with that. I think it's, I think the commit trial, people can basically think of it as the ISIS-1 trial, except metoprolol succinate was used in place of atenolol, but actually they were used at, at an equivalent dose. And unlike ISIS-1, this trial allowed for the inclusion of patients with signs of heart failure and hemodynamic instability. And those patients were excluded from ISIS-1. And when you add those patients in and the treatment effect heterogeneity that came from those patients, um, you canceled out the small but statistically significant benefits seen in the ISIS-1 trial. So ISIS-1 was positive, but it excluded patients who probably did worse with beta blocker. That's right. And if you recall, ISIS-1 did... ISIS-1 was a very large trial, similar to COMMIT, and they did actually have a, a relatively small fraction of patients who ended up getting enrolled who did have signs of hemodynamic instability. And if you recall, there was a, what I felt to be a, a relatively clear signal of, of harm in those patients. I thought that that, I thought that, that treatment effect heterogeneity was, was fairly clear in ISIS-1, but also, I mean, I'm interpreting it in, in retrospect, and I already know results of trials that came later, um, but the treatment effect heterogeneity in COMMIT basically is a mirror of what we saw in ISIS, just with many more patients, because it, it, it didn't seek to exclude those patients. So, uh, in COMMIT, the overall result was non-significant, kind of null, but maybe because treat maybe because patients who um, were not hemodynamically unstable, who were stable, did a little better, and patients who were uh, worse off um, did worse, and the overall balance uh, ended up being negative. Now. The tension in my mind there is that, you know, trials are powered for their overall result. And here we're, you know, we're, we're finding two subgroups that make clinical sense. And so we're, we're kind of giving a lot of weight to the subgroups here. Um, but we also know that some subgroups can be quite spurious. So I, I guess um, I would just throw that out there to see what either of you think. Um, I think that the weight of the evidence that that, that we have um, allows us to have sufficient confidence to um, not think that the that the subgroup findings are spurious here um, that they are real. Um, they the authors of commit actually put the basically sort of subdivided these patients into stable and unstable. And when they did a meta-analysis of prior beta blocker trials, including ISIS-1, um, and they only included the stable patients from COMMIT, they basically showed that the results were very consistent. Um, and so I, I understand that, that concern, but, um, I feel fairly confident in in being able to say that 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 treatment effect heterogeneity is is very real here. And I would all I would also say that um, 
it's actually an area where where I think the guideline writers actually agree. Um, and when they talk about using beta blockers in patients with acute MI, they talk about um, applying caution or restraint in in using them in patients with hemodynamic instability based on heart rate greater than 90 or systolic blood pressure less than 110 or 120. Yeah, and um, I think that that's Ruzier's point is so important because a lot of times, a lot of times when you see a higher heart rate, you would think that uh, you'd want to slow that with beta blockade. But again, that's a that's sort of a compensatory high heart rate and actually a sign of hemodynamic instability, and it's it's a bad thing. Um, and the data and the data really the data really support that. And it, it sort of makes sense if the heart is struggling um, and cardiac output is down, then you're throwing on top of it a negative onotrope. I mean, that's a totally different mechanism of, you know, beta blocker there. I mean, that's the effect. It's not even a side effect. The, the, the effect is to decrease contractility. And um, that's what you don't want when patients are struggling. Right. In fact, I, I mean, I think what you want is um, is afterload reduction. Uh, right to relieve to relieve uh, or to improve cardiac output and take the stress off of uh, off of a heart that that's struggling. That's right, and and I mean, in fact, you see that that's sort of exactly what the requirement was in the Capricorn trial before beta blockers were to be initiated because of the recognition that these were patients with LV dysfunction uh, and heart failure, that they needed afterload reduction first. They needed to be euvolemic first. They couldn't be on IV diuretics uh, prior to initiating beta blockade. So I think, I mean, to me, the overall story with, with, these, with the beta blocker trials is that using beta blockers up front is is you know has a small but statistically significant uh impact on on outcomes in stable patients um and if you're looking at thinking about them for anti-anginal properties in the setting of acute infarct patients who are like hypertensive i think they make a lot of sense but if you're if you have a patient who is hemodynamically unstable signs of congestive heart failure these are vulnerable much higher risk patients and um, in that case beta blockers should not be reached for as the first medicine we have signals of harm in commit trial and isis one when that when that sort of procedure is followed and then of course if we're going to be more careful about it and follow the capricorn trial we have to acknowledge the sequencing in that case is to make the patients euvolemic and to have them stable on an afterload reducing agent before you should really be thinking about initiation and up titration of beta blockers. So, I mean, I think that that is a, is a very reasonable and rational interpretation of all of these beta blocker trials that we've looked at so far, which would be BHAT, ISIS-1, Capricorn, and COMMIT. And would it be fair to even... Uh, make a global comment that 
all of these trials were done pretty much before acute PCI and re and really aggressive reperfusion was well no no, no? I mean the reperfusion error had been established by the time Capricorn and Commit were were published. I mean okay. now Commit was done in China and the the main reperfusion uh, modality was thrombolysis. But I, I mean, thrombolysis is a is a fairly effective revascularization technique, um, and really not that much difference. Well, I guess we'll talk about that at another yeah. time. But well, but, but thrombolysis is a, is an effective revascularization technique, especially when used in conjunction with aspirin. And so, I do think these trials can be considered in the revascularization error, at least. Uh, Capricorn and commit. Okay, perfect. Yeah, we're going to talk about. We'll have surprises, I think, when we when we talk about the uh, uh, thrombolysis and and also uh, also I actually think there'll be some not surprises, but there'll be some interesting caveats when we talk about the chronic heart failure and beta blocker story uh, in terms of external validity and, and clinical translation of those. So, excellent. Any final comments, Rousier? Uh, no, I think this has been excellent. And I want to emphasize the point made by Drew about the use of beta blockers. There is a place to use them in MI patients, but I don't think we should just throw them on everyone who has myocardial infarction. But there are certain group of people who would benefit and we we give it to them, and I think all of us give it to them. But to just to throw them at everyone as a first line therapy, I don't think uh, that's necessarily always the right thing to do. So, right, and I what, and I think as a first line therapy, I think it is worth talking about maybe what what our opinion is of the weight of evidence at, for let's say ACE inhibitors compared to beta blockers. Um, and I think the trials that we've talked about so far in ACE inhibitors, um, which is not all of them, but, but four big ones, um, show that, that they probably should be the first line agent, especially in patients who have LV dysfunction or any signs of heart failure, hemodynamic instability and beta blockers really should be second or they need to be reserved for patients who are hemodynamically stable uh, and lower risk or you know the other caveat is if somebody is having angina like a post-infarct angina and they're hypertensive but um I, I do think it's fair to make a general comment about what should really be the first line agent and i guess i feel quite strongly that um it should be ace inhibitors which is unfortunately exactly the opposite to what I see in clinical practice. Yeah, uh, I see the same thing too. And but uh, I clearly this look at the these look at these trials really cha has changed my mind, and at least I really think it's useful to to look at these because I've been doing cardiology for twenty eight years, and I'm learning a ton by looking at these seminal trials in a critical way. Yes, I agree. Pretty, it's pretty, it's exciting. Yeah. All right. Excellent.
see you next week thank you all for listening if you like this subscribe and give us a rating it will help others find us easier see you next week